I've had a number of people talk to me about what I'm supposed to be teaching today. In fact, the guy who I respond to first and foremost, my boss, said weeks ago, now be prepared to teach on the call of Abram from Genesis chapter 12. I said, great, love it, and I got weeks of planning and preparation. I can read a little along the way. I'll be flying in late the night before, so I won't have to rush, won't feel pressured. No problem. I got Genesis 12 until Thursday afternoon when Mark said, oh, by the way... No one's supposed to tell you this. Everybody's on board. There's a grand conspiracy afoot. They're all going to expect to hear Genesis 12, the call of Abram. But I'm telling you, because Mark's not anything if not honest and forthright, he said, I'm still in Genesis 2. (laughs) I said, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, just do whatever you want. And I said, no, you know me. I think sequence is important. So how about I just jump back and do Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, and then Genesis 12 and the call of Abram will be there when you get to it. Now, how many of you were prepared to lie to my face today? Good. Loyalty is a, is a, it's a good thing, I, I think. Maybe. No, no, we're going to go to Genesis 3. So if you have a Bible and you want to go there with me, I'm going to meet you there at Genesis chapter 3 as we think about this book of beginnings. And I love this series. I I so appreciate Mark taking the time to look at this from a little bit of a different perspective, bringing in some additional contextual information uh, to help us better understand Genesis and therefore the books that are to follow. I said I wasn't going to do it, but I showed you pictures. I'm going to say I'm going to do one more thing. I said I wouldn't do it. I'm going to tell a Genesis joke. Do you know the first mention of baseball in the Bible? Genesis 1, in the beginning. Free. You can have that. You can use that. Don't worry about attribution. Just go ahead and use it. Help yourself with it. Now, I want us to go to the Garden of Eden. That'll be the last corny joke I tell today. Maybe. Never can tell. Sometimes they just come out. Join me in the Garden of Eden. It's in Genesis chapter 2, of course. Mark did a great job last week of setting up all the events of the fall in Genesis chapter 2 because that's really where uh, we see a little bit more about what's happening in the Garden of Eden. Something is happening. Something did happen. There was an event. Uh, There was a tragedy. There was an unfortunate set of decisions that were made that led to some unfortunate consequences that were paid. And oh, by the way, that we are still paying today. It's called the fall because mankind fell from his and her rightful place in full, unhindered, unencumbered fellowship and intimacy with their maker, with their creator, with God himself. We'll read in the scripture a passage that gives us indication that God actually walked in the garden with the man and with the woman in full fellowship with them. Now we know God doesn't have legs, he doesn't have arms in the literal sense. But the presence of God was so real in the Garden of Eden, it was as if God just came and walked through the garden like you would walk with your grandfather through a garden, or a best friend, or a parent, someone you just love, someone whose presence you appreciate, someone who, when they're near, is just that unmistakable presence of being fully present with you. That was the relationship. That was the experience. But you know they made a bad decision in the Garden of Eden. They, being both, both made bad decisions in the Garden. They chose Rather than walking in obedience to the God who created them, they chose to go their own way. They chose to do their own thing. They chose to make their own decision. And in so doing, they disobeyed God himself. And there was a consequence to that disobedience. A lot was lost on that day. In fact, every ache and pain you felt this morning when you got out of bed, blame it on Adam and Eve. 
Every bit of bad news you've ever gotten, every phone call, every letter, every doctor's report, every sad headline you've ever read, blame it on Adam and Eve. It's their fault. And we need somebody to blame for our problems, don't we? Well, it all starts right here in the Garden of Eden. They were cast out and an angel was set before the entrance to the garden to make sure nobody would ever come back into that garden and that place ever again. Where is that place? I don't know. As I watched last week's lesson. <laughs> we don't know. Of course we don't know. Uh, you might say somewhere probably in Baghdad, uh, not Baghdad, but Iraq in that region of the world, just given what information we do have, but we don't know. And it doesn't matter because if it were on a map and you could get there, you couldn't get in because it's closed. It's closed. There's no going in the garden. We've been kicked out. We've been run off. And the door was slammed, as it were, behind us. So we're going to talk today about that experience, the fall. And from a paradise, from a utopian-type existence, from pleasures indescribable, we have this now barren and difficult and painful existence that we know now as life. Things really changed as a consequence or as a result of the fall. So here we are looking back and trying to understand what happened. It's a part of a bigger question that we humans seem to be just hardwired and pre-programmed to ask. Who are we? Where did we come from? How did we get here? Because those are important questions to ask and answer as we determine where we're going. And in the particular context we know... It's important to ask those kinds of questions because in all likelihood those are the kinds of questions the people of Israel were asking or else Moses would not have answered them. And we'll find some of those answers in today's text. Questions like, what does it mean? Why am I here? How to get here? And where am I going? So let's get a road map. Everybody needs a road map. need to know where we're going. First we're going to talk about the ancient context of the story of the fall in Genesis chapter really 2 and especially 3. And then we're going to talk about the story itself. We'll look at the text, we'll read through the text, we'll make some points about the text, but I'm going to assume you already know this story pretty well. So I'm going to hit that lightly, if that's possible for a Baptist preacher to ever say or do. By the way, a few minutes ago, Brent Johnson saw this and held it up, and he said, that's really cool. I said, don't worry about that. I don't. <laughs> you know, do you know the little girl who went to church with her neighbor? And she kept seeing the preacher look at his watch, and he'd look at his watch, and he'd look at his watch. And she, not being a church kid, said, what's that mean? What's he doing? And the little girl next to her who'd been there many times said, absolutely nothing. Don't worry about it. (laughs) So we'll take the ancient context, we'll take the Genesis story, and then we'll take a look ahead. Because as we've been uh, really focusing in this particular study, we want to know what Moses was up to when he put these words on paper. We want to know what was he thinking Is this a prequel? Is this a pretext for a text? And what do we take from this forward? What would the children of Israel take forward? What do these stories mean to them along life's journey toward the promised land? So that's our roadmap. Let's get started. We'll go first to the ancient context. And as we've already discovered, and by quick review, we want to look around at the context. Now, that's always a good strategy. When you're doing biblical interpretation... You don't want to lift a verse out of its context, the text it's with, and try somehow to understand it and apply it. That's called isogesis. That's reading into the text something you're hoping to find. And you find a proof text in the Bible. The problem is separated from its context. It may not mean at all what you or that person or that cult is making it out to be or to mean. So we want to always understand text with regard to its context. 
And in the book of Genesis, from a literary perspective, we know that book of Moses, there it says, the first book of Moses, which is foundational to the next four books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the five books. There are five of them. Genesis is the foundational book to understanding what the other four say, mean, and how they apply. And you know, we've learned this, Genesis is a book written in an ancient language. What's the language class? Hebrew, very good. It's written with an ancient vocabulary, and it's written to people who have an ancient understanding of the world. Moses, all three of these apply. Ancient, ancient, ancient. The people of Israel, the readers, the intended audience of the book of Genesis, ancient, ancient, ancient. And while it's true, Genesis was written for us, so we don't set it aside. There's no unhitching of the Old Testament or of Genesis in this class. But we do understand that in order to make proper and true application and interpretation to us, we have to know who it came to and through initially or originally. We want to understand what it meant in that ancient language, vocabulary, understanding, and culture. So that's what we've been about these last few weeks, just sort of getting that perspective. And all of this comes together at a time when the children of Israel, the people of God, those who are following Moses into the wilderness and through the dry deserts, hoping finally to arrive in the promised land. They, no doubt, after 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt, are asking fundamental existential questions like, who are we? Who are we? And questions like, where did we come from? Where did this all start? And what happened? How did we get here? And by the way, in this particular day and time, stories abound to answer those kinds of questions for all kinds of people. It wasn't unique to Israel. People all around them are asking those sorts of questions. We learned last week and in weeks previous about the number of stories surrounding the children of Israel about where humanity originated. How did it start? What happened? Who did what? When? Where? How? Why? Those creation narratives. They're in all sorts of different literatures and cultures and people groups. They're everywhere. As are stories about a paradise sort of existence or a utopia or, in our context, the Garden of Eden. Our particular story in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 is not unique in the sense that it's not the only story of creation, of an existence, and a fall. Those stories are everywhere. And the children of Israel, and certainly Moses, heard those stories knew many of the myths of other religious practices or philosophies or thoughts. They knew those stories. And throughout Mesopotamia, uh, throughout that whole part of the world, there are any number of stories. Still are. I was reading a few just, uh, I would say this week, but since Thursday, I I read a few uh, that were interesting to me. For example, uh, uh, there's an African myth that's uh, predominant uh, in uh, Cameroon, I believe, as I was reading into this. That the vault of heaven was originally within humanity's grasp. I mean, heaven was so close that it could be reached by humans, people on earth. But when a woman touched the wall of heaven with a load of wood that she was carrying, she asked God to move it over. And he got upset and moved it so far that a separation ensued and there came sudden uh, suffering and death. Separation. There's another story among the Maasai people 
And if you know anything about Maasai, those are the proud warriors. Those are the amazing people. I've been among those people in, in Africa. Uh, they've got a story about creation and they've got a story about the fall. This one's a little more simple. Uh, in, in the Maasai tradition, a package was given to humanity by God. But they were forbidden to open the package. But driven by their curiosity, they opened the box and guess what? They let loose sickness and suffering and death. That sounds a little bit like a Greek story. Have you ever heard of Pandora's box? Did you know Pandora's box, we use for an expression, is actually an explanation for the fall of man in Greek philosophy, Greek mythology. Pandora was sent to earth with this vase or box and told not to open it. Now she was sent as the first created woman by Zeus to bring punishment on humanity. Because the humans were disobeying or being disrespectful. Uh, they were yelling at the gods. And so they sent this woman, Zeus sent this woman, Pandora, with this box. And told not to open it. Sound familiar? Told not to open it. But as soon as she got around the corner and out of sight, you know what Pandora did. She popped the top. And what did she find? She found suffering. And she found sickness. And she found death. And she found all manner of evils. And realizing what she'd done and what was happening, she tried to cover the box as quickly as she could. And she did put the lid back on her box. And the only thing that was left in the box was hope. And that's an explanation for how come we're sick and how come we're suffering and how come we have to deal with evil things done by evil people in an evil world. These are reachings or graspings or attempts to get our minds around why. Why when you see on the evening news do you see what you see on the evening news? Why do you read in the papers what you read in the papers? Why is it sometimes just almost stunning the evil that we humans seem to be capable of? The warped thinking, the absolute complete lack of any reason, just abject evil and then the inexplicable suffering that we see, and death that comes too soon, and cancer, and people who hurt other people. I mean, we could go on and on, and what we're really wrestling with, what we're really reaching for, what we're really struggling for, is the same thing that all of humanity, it would appear, is grappling with, and that is why. How do we get around this? How do we come to an understanding of this? How do we process this? The Africans, the Greeks, the people in Asia, they have theirs. The Egyptians had theirs. And you know that Moses was raised under the influence of Egyptian teaching. Moses certainly knew what the Egyptian stories were. Uh, For example, when the story or the myth of the celestial cow, you've seen that. Mark has taught you on that in times past. But in this particular case, the people were hurling insults at the god Ra or Re. And he glared back. And as he was staring, one of his eyes became Hathor, who organized a massacre of the rebels as they were fleeing into the desert. He just had enough of their rebellious ways, and so he sent this goddess to take them out. However, he felt a little sorry that he'd sent her out, and he was seeing what was going on. And instead of letting all of humanity be wiped out and to spare some of the human race, Ray preferred this particular process where he saved some and then he went up and sat on the back of newt and the vault of heaven transformed into a cow 
Now, I've left out a lot of details, but given you just enough to know that in all of these cultures and among all these people, there are stories of the fall. There are stories to help explain what happened and how did we get here from there. And if there was this creative event, and if perhaps there was this creative force, and we were in some sense in relationship to that creative force, what happened to the fruits and the blessings of that created space, that utopia or that paradise? Same in Sumerian and Akkadian and Babylonian. They all had their myths. A unique difference here and in many of these stories is this. That they all typically put the blame for the evil in the world as being pre-existent among the gods. And that there were lesser gods or younger gods who warred against older gods. And that really is the source of the evil that we experience. But we humans experience this evil and this suffering as a consequence not of our own actions. But of these finicky, fickle misbehaving, immature, egotistical gods. In fact, in many of these teachings surrounding where the people of Israel will be going, where they'll be living, where they'll be raising their families, where they'll be teaching about truth and not truth, there is a recurring theme that you get what you've got coming to you, not because of anything you've done, but because of what some god somewhere has done to you. You are, in a sense, the innocent victim. You are are suffering the results, but you are not the cause of your suffering. It's your fate. It's your destiny. You don't have freedom. Your freedom, your fate is predetermined by the gods. So you're a pawn in some vicious god game that someone's playing at your expense. So these stories abound. But you know there's a lot that's very unique, even though there may be some similarities in many of these explanations. So we go specifically to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 to find out what's going on now, not just in the context around the Israelites, not just around the teachings of Moses, but what is it that Moses is going to teach specifically as he writes this foundational book in Genesis, and especially Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So let's go there, and before we get there, let's make sure we understand chapter 3, verse 1, in its context within the biblical narrative. You pick it up in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it. Purpose. To keep it. Responsibility. It's a golden age. It's a paradise. It's a beautiful place. Anything and everything you could possibly imagine that's good and wholesome and God is there. It's paradise. They had every good thing they could ever need. Sin, suffering, and death. What's that? Unknown. Only ever heard of in the prohibition against the use of the particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Other than that, what's sin? Other than that, what's suffering? Other than that, what's death? No idea. Unknown. And most importantly, and this is most importantly... God himself was with them in this paradise called the Garden of Eden. He was there in the garden. Now that's important. This is a part of the prequel. This is a part of the pretext, as it were. This is a part of the preparation for what's to come. Moses wants them to understand what it was like when it was all good. And the point is not the abundance of food or produce... It's not, though, that's a wonderful thing to think about. You never have to work a day of your life for the rest of your life. You only get to do the kind of work that's productive and 
that gives you joy and purpose and meaning. By the way, I know Mark mentioned last week, uh, work is pre-fall. I, I think John Lennox mentioned that weeks ago. Work is pre-fall. God has given us work to do because our lives depend on have something purposeful to do with our lives. But it became drudgery. It became a job. <laughs> Just one little letter, J to B, went from joy to a job in the fall. But that's not the most important part. Uh, really, truly immortality, if you think about it. Though that sort of circulates through all of these narratives and all of these other stories. Living forever really wasn't the point. It was the fruit, not the root. The root was the presence of God and their intimate relationship with Him, their fellowship with Him. See, Moses is wanting them to understand, here in just a few moments we'll unpack, how important it is for God to dwell among His people. To be with them. And some of you are thinking way ahead. You know where we're going with that before the end of this lesson. But hang in there. Let's stay in the context first. Next verse in chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Whatever you want. All that. Oh my goodness. You mean all that? Yeah all that. It's all yours. It's for you. Have at it. Won't hurt you a bit. It's good for you. But. Verse 17, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. The day that you eat of it. Now, we could spend a lot of time unpacking that. Let's don't. But know this before we move on. Adam, you got a choice, son. I've lovingly crafted you. I'm lovingly caring for you. I only want what's best for you. But you've got to understand something. I'm going to fight for you, even if I have to fight against you. And whatever you do, created being of mine, friend, don't touch that tree. Well, actually, didn't say that, did he? Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. Don't do it. So every day, Adam lives in the Garden of Eden and has a choice to make every day. I can have all this and I can have all I want of all that. But this one tree, eh, don't eat that one. Uh, You know what we call the forbidden fruit. Because it was forbidden. And Adam had to make a choice. He had to make a decision daily. Now think about this for a moment. Adam is free, isn't he? He's free. God has created a free, moral, choice-making being in the person. He's not a robot. I don't think you've ever seen a famous portrait or painting or read John Milton's Paradise Lost where you see a robot that is pre-programmed to obey God and has no choice otherwise. You don't see that anywhere. What you see is God chooses humanity and humanity must choose God. So he's free. He's a free moral being. He can make choices. If there were no options, then he wouldn't have a choice to make and therefore he wouldn't have been free. Are you with me? Now I know what you're thinking because you're rational people and you would say, well, you know, if God wanted to spare us a whole lot of suffering and sin and separation to death, he'd just put that tree somewhere else. 
That's what we do. You know, Beverly and I, we don't put a hot stove and, and just watch and see what Fletcher's going to do. We protect Fletcher. We don't let him near the hot stove. That, that's, that's, that's fair. That's a fair question. Although it's more of a temporal understanding kind of a question, not an existential kind of question, where we talk about what was God up to in creation and what was God up to in the Garden of Eden and what was it God doing in among the children of Israel when he called out Abram? And what was God doing when he led them out of bondage and into the wilderness and threw into the promised land? What is God doing now? Except giving you and me the moral choice to choose in earnest him... Or something other than him. I mean at the heart of this conversation is where in the world will you find your ultimate satisfaction in life? Will you ultimately be satisfied from God and in God or other than and depart from God? That's the real question here. That's really what's going on. There is a question that Adam had to make make that Eve had to make and that we all have to make and it is a daily daily decision so this is our roadmap. this is what's happening in the ancient context now let's just go a little deeper and pick up chapter 3 verse 1 and let's talk about the story now the serpent that's where you go boo hiss now the serpent because everything was good until now I had a few pictures of some just nasty snakes I was going to put up here, but I don't like snakes, and I don't want to look up there and see a big snake, and I don't want you sending me an email that says that triggered my fear. I don't. So just imagine the serpent. And by the way, I couldn't find a snake standing upright. Thought about a king cobra, but not sure that's exactly what was happening. The serpent was more crafty. He was devious. He was cunning than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Some big theological questions there. He said to the woman, you ready? So, Eve, got a minute? Been thinking, got a question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? Now what do you do when someone asks you a question about God? God's will. God's plan and purpose for your life. God's direction. God's way. What do you do? Uh, let me think. I give you, I give you a, a, a tip. <laughs> Ask him. <laughs> uh, go open the book and find the verse and read it for yourself. That's just a good thing because in, al- in actuality, flipping back to chapter 2, here's what was said. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden... But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now where would that whole touch thing come from? I don't know. Might be much about nothing. Maybe Eve was just putting in a little barrier to protect. You know what I'm saying? Like if there's a cliff, what do you put up next to the cliff? A fence, a barrier, a barricade. Maybe maybe that's all it was. I I don't know. It'd be speculative, I think. Maybe somebody smarter than me knows. But it's not what God said. So there is a question and there's some lack of understanding about what was actually said and what it actually was, the prohibition. But the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. That's a lie. 
So we weren't too clear about the eat it, don't even touch it. But this part is no confusion here. If you disobey me and take of the fruit of that tree, not all these other trees, but that one tree, you take that fruit and eat it, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now you decide whether you want that to be a yom, a 24-hour day, or an age, or, or, or an era of sorts. You decide. But we know we, that they didn't die immediately when they ate the fruit. They didn't drop dead right then. So that kind of gives you some idea of how to pour up probably take that verse or else you give some credit and think well maybe it was the provision that god made in response to their sin that kept them from dropping dead on that day lots of ways to approach it but i can tell you this the day that they ate of it was the day they disobeyed god and separated themselves from that intimate love relationship in fellowship in friendship with god suddenly there was a hindrance suddenly there was a separation and the day they unplugged they started dying you can cut some beautiful flowers and you can put them in a vase. See how I said that? And you can set the vase on a table. And people will say, oh, you got fresh flowers. Alive flowers. Not after that. That did it. Now, the evidence of that will take a while to become more obvious. But corruption sets in the moment it's separated from the source of its life. Just keep that in mind. It's the separation that's the problem. So this is necessarily a chronological, sequential kind of question. It's got more to do with what's behind this. And that as soon as they disobey God, they're created a space from God. And now they're no longer intimately connected to God. And the life is draining out of them in that moment. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open is Satan's suggestion. You won't die. In fact, you're going to gain. You're not going to lose. You're going to get something you don't have now. You're going to gain some knowledge and some understanding. Your eyes will be open. What's he suggesting? Because you're blind now. You have no idea. Look at you. Poor, innocent fool that you are. Boy, God is playing with you. Now, if you're living in this biblical... Uh, cultural context of Moses and Egypt and the people of Israel and Mesopotamia, right now, you're sort of thinking the devil might be right. Because we've heard that story before. We know how the gods play games with us and trick us. We know how the gods deceive us, keep things from us. So maybe there's some leaning into the story at this point because it's starting to sound like some of these other stories we've heard before. Oh, if you... Just grab that fruit, take a big old bite. You're not going to believe how your life's going to change. Whew, my goodness, there's much, much, much you don't know. There's more, more, more to the story than God's telling you. In fact, you will be like God. Well, that's in some of these stories too. That have, having had fallen... In the sense from divinity, there's the possibility we could attain divinity. You'd be like God. You can sit in his chair. You can take over his corner office. Because you will know good and evil. You'll know it. You'll know good and evil. Now, let's pause and hang around that tree for just a minute. And ask ourselves a really important question. What's the big deal about one fruit tree? Give me a break. Come on. It's just a tree. It's just an apple or pear or kumquat or persimmon. No, it wouldn't be a persimmon. No way. 
A fig. Might have been a fig. Don't know. We don't know. C.S. Lewis made it as a teardrop, a, a pear in a sense. If you come to the Lanier Chapel, you'll see it in panel one as you come in the front door. I don't know what kind of fruit it was. In all likelihood, it wasn't an apple, but stay with me, okay? It doesn't matter. But what's the point with this one big deal, this one big piece of fruit on this one big apple tree? Well, remember, this tree represents a choice which gives every indication that now the man and the woman have the responsibility to choose rightly or else they're not moral beings with the freedom to choose God. So there is the tree. And if there's no choice to make, they're not free to choose. But let's not get hung up on this because you know already, and I, I, I know it wasn't really about the tree, was it? It was about trust. Could have been anything. Could have been a glass. Could have been a, who knows? Could have been anything. Could have been a plate of cookies. Could have been anything. Could have been any part of the garden that was restricted. Could have been anything. Anything that presented to the man and the woman the opportunity to choose and in so doing to choose rightly and to choose God. Or to choose to reject God and take God's place and do God's job for him. It really wasn't about the tree. It was about trust. Here's the question I think Satan, the serpent, is asking Eve. Is God withholding for your good or is God withholding good from you? Are you sure you trust this guy? I mean, there's a lot he knows that you don't know. So how do you know that this God you think is so good is really, in fact, good? How do you know? Do you know his intentions? Do you know what he's up to? Do you know where this is going? Do you really understand why he said you can have all that don't touch or eat this? Do you know? So it's a question of trust because... The answer to the question is no, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, things happen all the time. People want instant, pat, button-down explanations. Explain this. I'm sorry, I can't explain it. Why'd this happen? I don't know. God already gave us a verse, by the way, just to help you out in a moment like that. My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts, saith the Lord. So, hey... Accept your own mortality and the finiteness of your processor. Your brain about the size of two fists together just like that. And with that, you're going to comprehend all there is to comprehend about the things of God and eternity. Give me a break. I'm doing good to get the right coffee in the morning. So Eve is pressed on this trust issue. And by the way, I I read something interesting. Good and evil. Lots of ways to think about that. Think about that good she knew, evil she did not know. Meaning, if you think about that, we think, obviously, because we've experienced evil, that evil is bad for you. Right? But do people choose evil all the time because there's some perceived value or bonus or benefit to it or joy or pleasure associated with it? They do. People do. We have. You and I do. You know how I know? Because you a sinner. Me too. And every time we sin, we are choosing evil given our knowledge of the fruit of that evil. 
So it's an interesting conversation. I've read others who have sort of said about this that, that good and evil is more of a rhetorical device. It just sort of says you'll know everything. Like inside and out. Top to bottom. East to west. You'll have it all. You'll know ever good and evil. Because they didn't know evil. So here's an opportunity to be challenged in her decision-making process to believe God and to say, yeah, I don't need to know anything about the and part. I'm good with what I know and, and what God has said. I'm good right there. Besides anything less than that, he's already told me, is going to result in something I'm not interested in taking on today. Thank you very much. Go away. I don't know. Obviously, some of it's just conversation. Some of it's just speculation. But I think in the context, what he's tempting her with is the opportunity to know what God knows. So that she can think like God thinks, so that she can do what God does. You know the big problem with that is, don't you? She wasn't God. <laughs> She's not God. But the question is, is God good and is God God? Those are the real questions at stake here. So we shouldn't get hung up on the kind of tree, or the kind of fruit, or whether it was just this one tree and why. This is really an expl- explanation of a conversation that caused doubt in the character and the nature of God. Is he good? And is he God? Well, you could sort of flip these because if you ever get it in your mind that God is God, then your perception of good and evil is irrelevant. Now, that's harsh. I admit that's harsh. But can I just daringly say that if God is God, nothing else matters? You with me? Because what does it change? I mean, can God do what God does and still be God? He's not going to be inconsistent with his character. He's going to be God. Now, the good news is God is good, and those two are linked. Those two go together. So you can always trust that because God is God, therefore God is good. Now, if God wasn't God, he may not be good. Because the gods, little g with an S, they're not good. They're tricksters. They're manipulative. They're maniacal and egotistical and they'll do things to you and then just watch you spin but what is Moses saying God Elohim God Yahweh is good and he is God and you can trust him this whole conversation hangs on trust as does every conversation we have and every choice we make every day of our lives we're choosing day by day We think it's all these little bitty questions and little bitty choices that we make and little inconsequential circumstances that we face. But at the heart of humanity in our relationship to God our Creator is this. Is He God and is He good? And can you trust Him? And should you obey Him? And the answer to all of those are a resounding yes. A resounding yes. So God's not withholding good from her. He's withholding for her good. Because he has set this clearly before her. If you make this choice, you choose me. If you make that choice, you choose other than me. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was where? 
country mile away, <laughs> around the corner. Nope, he was right there with her, and he ate. Uh, by the way, um, I this is inconsequential, shouldn't matter, and I'm going to do just a minute, just take one minute to pull something back from chapter 2. Remember that question about did God actually say? Who did God actually say it to? The Lord, you were paying attention, weren't you? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, don't do it. The day that you do it, you will surely die. Then what happened after God put the man and commanded the man and told the man? Then what happened? Next verse. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. So what was he when God took him and put him and told him? Alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God, verse 21, calls a deep sleep. You know how that story goes. Whoa, man. So whose job is it to instruct Eve in the ways of God? Apparently, and maybe this is too limited. That's why I said just give it a minute. I won't go any further. But here's the point I want to make. Uh, Adam, yeah, he was with her. And I wonder if Adam was over in her ear while this whole conversation was going on saying, Don't do it. Don't do it. God said, don't do it. I told you what God said. Don't do it. Maybe he was. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. Ladies, do you want to give him the benefit of the doubt? No way. <laughs> he was the man. And she was the woe man. And God told the man. So the man should have told the woe man. And in the moment of decision, the man should have said, woe man. But he didn't, apparently. I'm speculating. We don't have every word that was said. I, I acknowledge it. I admit it. I just wanted to say, while there is certainly the responsibility that God assigns, as we'll see in the text in just a moment, for Eve's act of rebellion first, and we see even in the New Testament there is this conversation about the roles that we play. I get that. I don't dis- uh, debate that. I, it's not, I'm not arguing that. I just wanted to make the point, man. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. This is tragedy. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, first time ever. And they hid among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, knowing what they had done, did an about face and walked out of the garden. And he hadn't thought of us since. Are y'all reading the Bible? No, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? You, you know he knew, right? Okay. okay. And, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. First time ever. Because I was naked. What's that? And I hid myself. Why? God said, who told you you were naked? 
Second question. Who are you listening to? Hmm? Third question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Do you think he needed to ask that question for his sake? The apple core laying there on the path might have been a clue. Somebody has been munching on the forbidden fruit. God knew. And yet God came. Where are you? Who told you that? What have you done? God didn't ask that for himself. He asked it for themselves. He, he's pointing out to them what they needed to know about themselves. This is for their benefit. Because suddenly, the man and the woman who would have greeted God in the afternoon, in the cool of the day as he walked through the garden, wouldn't have been hiding, they wouldn't have been ashamed, they wouldn't have been afraid, and they wouldn't have been taking on some pitiful human effort to atone for their own sins. They wouldn't have. They would have met him at the door. They would have said, hey, come on in. How's it going? How's the universe? Huh? So, so this was for them to know where they were and what they had done and why. Because they had listened to the voice of another. By the way, we use the term in evangelical life, lost. And sometimes in conversations, we tend to think of lost just being you don't know where you are. That's not, that's not what lost means in this context. Lost means you're not where you're supposed to be. So you might know exactly where you are. You might be absolutely intentionally lost in the sense that you don't want to be where you're supposed to be, so you'll go somewhere else. And, and, and I mean, lost is lost if you don't know where you are, agreed. But in this context, they're just not where they're supposed to be, which is walking with God, in fellowship with God, in harmony with God. They're not there. They're lost. They're not where they're supposed to be. Where are you? Who told you? What have you done? Back to the tree. Where are you? Who told you? Have you? The man said, the woman. (laughs) If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or you can just blame your wife. (laughs) Just blame her. And the Lord God said to the woman, what's this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. Which is about the first true thing they've said. And I ate. Confession. The Lord God said to the serpent, now come the consequences. The consequences. I think I had some consequences that aren't showing up on the screen. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. But here's the proto-evangelium, Genesis 3.15, the gospel in the statement. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire to be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, who listened to the voice of the tempter, and have eaten of the... I, I put that in. And eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. That's what I said. We were clear on that. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Does this sound like the Garden of 
Eden, to use this, sound like paradise? No, it's getting tough. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat the bread. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for your dust. You see, they were dust, and God breathed into them his life, his breath. And they became a living being, unlike any of the rest of creation. And yet, for the wages of sin is death, separation, the life of God, no longer flowing through the man because of sin, therefore death's on its way. And dust you shall return. You're mortal. You are mortal. You got to think in there for a minute, you might be God. But you're going to be gone. Because that's what sin does. And those consequences, innocence to shame and guilt. Intimacy to separation. A life of pleasure and purpose to toil and pain. Immortality to suffering and sickness and death. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. A picture, isn't it? A a picture of a provision, isn't it? And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, because that door is closed. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, there we have the painting. Expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Thomas Cole, 1828. You can see it at the Museum of Fine Arts. Or you can just walk out your front door. And realize that what God intended and what God created, we messed it up. And and the source of all this, don't point your finger at God. Don't shake your fist at God. We got a lot of responsibility because we are free moral beings who unfortunately make choices that we ought not make. And quickly, where's this pretext going? Where's this prequel preparing us? Remember, Genesis is foundational. So what is Moses and the story of the fall preparing the people for? I can do this very quickly because it's obvious, isn't it? They're about to build a tabernacle, which is to the people the very presence of God in their midst. There's the law of Moses. These commandments are coming down off of Mount Sinai and now we have some understanding foundationally to how to live in relationship to God as both free and responsible humans. And there are some decisions they're going to have to make along the way. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 26. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I have commanding you, I commanded you today to go after other gods that you have not known. So now they have some foundational understanding of this decision that they're going to have to make on a daily basis. Are we going to trust God, believe God, and let God be God, or are we going to do our own thing here? And you read the story in the next four books, and you'll see how often they got it right and the times they got it wrong. But we can fast forward this even further. It even gets a lot more contemporary because if we take a long look ahead, a further look ahead, we've not only seen the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and the consequences of sin and the atonement for sin, 
We could look even further into the future and into the New Testament and realize Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Where are you? That's the voice of a seeker. Where are you? What have you done? Who are you listening to? Come to me. We learn in the New Testament, we understand we're sinners by nature and by choice. By nature, meaning we inherit a sin nature or a bent towards sin from our ancestor Adam. You want to read about that, we won't take too much time to do it, but go to Romans chapter 5, begin reading in verse 12. It talks about our identification with Adam, our representation in Adam, and the inheriting of Adam's sin that we all participate in. Now, if you get all hung up and say, well, that's not fair. I don't really care for this uh, guilty by association. Hang on. Don't go too far. Remember, you're also innocent by association. Hello? Don't get upset about guilty by association if you'll be judicially declared innocent by association in Christ, who is our Adam. What else in the New Testament? Jesus went to the cross as our substitute and then promised us heaven, the paradise of being together forever. So Genesis really is, and Genesis 2 and 3 really are prequels. They really are pretexts for the post-text. They really are what it was then, when, and what it will be again by the grace of God. By the way, don't leave this. That God's response to the fall of humanity into sin and rebellion and the destruction and separation that come, he's pursuing in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. He's promising that proto-evangelium, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. And he provides the sacrifice for their covering, for their forgiveness, for their sin, and for the reunion instead of separation. All foreshadowing what is available to us and headed for us, as it were, the garden of heaven. So don't we have this in Genesis and don't we have it in Revelation? Let me close by sharing the verses. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The curse will be reversed. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So let me leave with you some hope today. There is a garden in your past. And there are many lessons to learn from there. But there is a garden in your future. If indeed you are in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is in you. God, Emmanuel, with you. In spite of your sin and sin nature, the things that you've inherited and the things you quite quickly acted upon early on, Jesus went to the cross and died for you. He became your substitute to atone for your sins. If you believe in him, there's a transaction that occurs where your sin is placed on him and his righteousness is placed in you. And in Christ... You have all the promises of God, a pursuing God, a promising God, a providing God who has promised for us a future with Him. And don't you make this mistake by getting all caught up and hung up on the sides of heaven and the streets of heaven and the gates of heaven and the river of heaven and the songs of heaven and the who is and who isn't going to be in heaven and is my dog going to be in heaven. 
And are we going to work in heaven and other questions? Believe me. Those are fine. Good for you. I, I Read Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. It's amazing how far-reaching it is. I don't agree with everything he says, but it's a fun read. Can I just remind you of the point? The one thing about heaven that makes heaven heaven is God will be there. God will be there. God will be there. And Lord, we look forward in great anticipation because every day we see where we are. And we know it's not because you played games or tricked us or deceived us or weren't honest to us or weren't faithful over us or didn't love us in the right ways and to the right degrees. We know that we live in a world that we helped to create through sinful decisions, choices, and actions. But we are so grateful that you haven't left us to our own designs. But you have made a promise and provision in your pursuit of us to bring us into your presence and into your glorious kingdom. So let us live in spite of what we see every day with faith and hope and confidence that the best is yet to come. And decide every day, every day and every moment and every way that you are all sufficient and we trust you. And in those decisions, let us live the blessings and the abundance of the life you have for us in Christ. We thank you as we go into worship. Bless our preacher. Bless our worship. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.